Thank you for tuning into Air and Earth, the podcast that lifts you up and keeps you grounded. I'm your host, Melissa Moffat, and I'm here to share some information that I've found helpful in my own life, as well as interview people on topics ranging from self-love of body, soul, and mind, social, environmental, and animal justice, mindfulness, business, relationships, ethics, and so much more with the intention of supporting you on your healing and growth journey as you strive to love yourself, those around you, and the planet just a little more. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Air and Earth Podcast. Today, we have a really special interview. I absolutely loved talking to Dr. Judith Simmer-Brown. She is a professor of contemplative and religious studies at Naropa University. She's been there since the founding in 1978 and is now retiring. She is also the author of Dakini's Warm Breath, The Feminine Principle in Tibetan Buddhism, which we talk a bit about in this interview. I love this interview because I feel like Judith is an incredible example of a woman who is empowered and still in touch with her compassion, her wisdom. And she uses those powers, which we talk about in this episode, she uses that power of her own sacred inner femininity wisdom to create massive benefit in the world through her teaching, through her online courses, through her books, through the work she does in her Buddhist community in which she is a senior Dharma teacher. She's absolutely incredible. She has some amazing stories, things like winning a sex discrimination in the workplace-based lawsuit in her early years of her career. She really is the embodiment of an incredible teacher, an incredible leader. We talk about being a leader as a female and how to embrace our own strengths to live a life where we are having impact, but we also feel aligned with our femininity. So I love this conversation. If you love the episode as much as I do, please give this episode a share, maybe copy the link and text it to a friend who needs to hear this right now, or maybe share on your Instagram story and I'll repost that into my story. I always, always, always love doing that. Also, if you love this conversation as much as I do, Feel free to check out more on Judith. You can learn about her compassion training through Mindful Magazine in the link in the show notes. You can also find the link to Dakini's Warm Breath, her book. And yeah, enjoy the episode. I love you all. I hope you are having an awesome day and have a good week too. Hi, Judith. I just first of all want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it and I can't wait to share your wisdom and and knowledge with the listeners here. Thank you so much, Melissa. It's wonderful to be invited. And this podcast sounds fantastic in its series and happy to be part of it. Thank you so much. So we'll, we'll dive right in because we have a lot to cover here and I know you have so much to share. So first I was wondering if you would tell a bit of your story and you... You have taught and written about 
the sacred feminine in spirituality. And I was wondering if you would share about that decision, how you came to that point in your career, and also perhaps why this is such an important topic to learn about and to share about. Thank you so much. One of my favorite things to talk about. So uh, quite some time ago, I wrote a book called Dakini's Warm Breath. And it is a book about the sacred feminine in Tibetan Buddhism, which is the tradition that I practice and I'm a teacher in. That book was the result of probably um, 15 years of just slowly putting things together for myself. And I think the reason that that became so important to me is that I had always understood intuitively that there was something really core to the spiritualities that attracted me uh, about the sacred feminine. And um, because I've been trained as the scholar and also as a Dharma teacher, I wanted to understand exactly what is meant by the sacred feminine in my own practice tradition, in the fields in which I'm a scholar, to try to understand really what that was about, because it seemed more subtle and more profound than some of the things I'd run into on the sacred feminine just out there in the world. So um, the book started out as a kind of project just to clarify things for myself, but the more I began, began to interview Tibetan teachers and lamas, uh, I began to realize that there was something extremely profound at the heart of all that, that was really a culmination of years of my own heartfelt uh, reflection. So um, as a college student, when I was 19 years old, I went to India as a study abroad student it was a long time ago. It was 1966. And it was before it was really cool to go to India. But there was something that really called me to India. And I was raised in a Christian family. I had been studying a little bit about Eastern religions, but was pretty new to all of that. But somehow when I landed in India and got off the plane and walked down the, you know, in those days you walked down stairs to the runway... Just being in India, there was something immediate that was triggered in me, almost like an ancient memory. And during my six months in India at age 19, I began to realize there was something there that for the first time in my life taught me what it was to be a woman. And it was very deeply connected to spirituality. So over the years, as I reflected on my experience in India, I went to a Gandhian ashram college. I learned meditation for the first time, and it kindled in me a, a, a deep, deep interest in the religions of India and the spiritualities of India. And as I later learned mantra meditation and then Buddhist meditation and began to take on meditation as a very central part of my life, life, and I studied Sanskrit language and Indian religions academically, I could feel that this was calling to something very deep for me that was connected with spirituality, intellect, and being a woman somehow. That all went together. So it took many years before that really came together as a book. But in my book, I tried to really articulate what my teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, called the feminine principle. And the feminine principle was something he 
was very excited teaching about. And then after he died, and I was trying to understand what he meant about the teachings of the feminine principle, and I went to interview many other lamas. Oh, they said, oh, tell us what your teacher told you. And I told them, and they said, oh, you mean Dakini principle? So that became very much a call for me to bring together what I understood was being taught in the practices and the uh, scholarly traditions of India and Tibet. That's a long story short. <laughs> That's great. I, I love hearing that story. It's amazing, really. Can you talk a little bit about why is that important to learn about? Maybe perhaps for women who are in the West or even men too. What, what's so, so important about it and worth learning and studying and sharing? There's in uh, Indian and Tibetan Buddhism a very deep sense that our own wisdom nature is feminine, that each of us have a, a kind of incredible wiseness about who we are that we've lost track of. And as we've lost track of it, we've gotten very caught in confusion and suffering and wild minds and random acts of all kinds. And so uh, the, the path in Indo-Tibetan Buddhism is to call us back to that innermost nature, the innermost wisdom that is always residing there, which is for men and women called the feminine principle. But Tibetan Buddhism also says that women have, um, if they're able to overcome the obstacles in their lives, they have a more natural ability to connect with this inner wisdom. And it's something that if women, if they have a teacher and a practice, they can begin to recognize and begin to discover what it really means to have that wisdom and that that is the key to being a woman in uh, Indo-Tibetan Buddhism. So what would you, besides reading your book, which we'll have linked in the show notes, what would you suggest for someone who is feeling that nudge to reconnect to their inner wisdom? The best and most direct way to do that is through meditation practice. And meditation practices can be daunting because, uh, and this is mindfulness meditation practice, or we, we call it more mindful mindfulness awareness practice. That is the, the act of bringing your mind into simplicity, paying attention to breathing in the present moment, and at first, of course, the mind can't do that, and it jumps and thinks and worries and rehearses things and relives things. But if we can keep coming back very simply to the present moment, there begins to dawn in the middle of our experience some kind of inner knowing that is timeless and is uh, profound and is very, very clear. And that is the core aspect of the feminine principle. You don't have to read books to access that. That's just something everyone has. If they can just settle and relax and let go of all of these random thoughts and emotions and just really feel this inner wisdom dawning. Right. So beautiful. It's, it's right there. <laughs> yeah. Right there. Thank you for sharing all of that. I was wondering now if you would talk about, you have a program on compassion. I was wondering if you would talk about the program and perhaps 
also talk about compassion. It's something we all hear that word. We know it, but why, why a program again? Why, why study it? Why is it important for us to actively cultivate? Well, I think one thing that happens when we develop that kind of inner knowing that inner wisdom, what begins to dawn right with it is the desire to relieve suffering of others and ourselves. And so compassion and wisdom always go right hand in hand in the spiritual traditions that I practice. That once you can see clearly, then you just feel an opening in your heart and you want to help. What we find when we really get into looking at compassion is most of us have a deep longing to to help others, a deep longing to be kind and to help relieve suffering in the world. But again, we've lost track of that as well in the midst of our habitual patterns and our, our thinking and our worries and all of that. And if we can begin to settle in that kind of way, this quality of compassion really it blooms in the heart like a, a lotus. You know, this sense of, uh, of this is who I am. I feel happier when I help others. I feel my purpose in life comes from helping others. And so compassion is viewed as a kind of inner instinct we all have that has been covered up over years of our lives. So compassion training is very helpful to put us back in touch with that kind of inner heart of compassion and help us really begin to taste it and, and realize how much we, we long to unfold that. And then um, as we begin to develop it, we can grow it and stabilize it and make it more strong in the world. And boy, these days, we need compassion in our world more than ever. The kind of harshness in the public square, the kind of violence of our world, compassion is needed more than ever. Don't you think? A hundred percent. Always, always, always. Both towards ourselves and towards others as well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And we are famously hard on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And when we're hard on ourselves, it's very hard to be generous to others. So yeah. they go hand in hand, self-compassion and compassion for others. I think women especially have been hard on themselves and right. haven't been, uh, women are taught to take care of everyone else, but not take care of themselves. So self-care is especially important for women to cultivate so that we can be able to give more and we can give more only if we feel really cared for ourselves it's so true it's so true oh, thank you for sharing that so now let's shift a little a little more we have on this podcast there's a lot of women who naturally feel a desire to help others and to step into a role of leadership in a, in a variety of ways. There's teachers, there's mothers, there's, you know, women who are interested in developing their careers in different ways. And you are someone who has over time had this role of leadership for a, a good period of time at Naropa University and in the Shambhala community. And I was wondering if you would talk a bit about what that process has been like for you, maybe some of 
the challenges, maybe some of the different perspectives of being a woman in those leadership positions and just shed some light on, on your story in a way that might encourage the, the women, most of who are young as well, to, to follow that path? Well, certainly it is when I first wanted to step into leadership or even have a decent job, it was a very difficult thing for women to be given the same employment opportunities as men. And while that may have changed a little bit, it's still there a lot. I think that uh, mainstream uh, halls of power give women the signal that the way to be a leader is to to act like a man, to be like a man, to uh, cover over emotions. You cannot be emotional if you're a leader. And you have to uh, be a very linear kind of thinker and such. So in my very first teaching job, university teaching job, when I was in my early 30s, um, I taught for a few years in a non-tenure track job. And then my contract was dropped and they hired a man in my place who was less qualified than I for the job. And they hired me back part time. And it was interesting because I was then recruited by the Human Rights Commission of the state of Washington on a class action suit against the university because of their blatant discrimination against women. Wow. It was a very tough, tough time. And uh, lots of depositions and all kinds of things. Um, I won that case and won a small settlement and they had to give the job back to me. But when they gave the job back to me, I was threatened by the president of the university and by male supervisors in my department that they were going to make my life a living hell. So that was back in the 1970s when so many places got away with blatant discrimination against women. Now there still is discrimination against women, but it's not as overt. And I think one of the things that I learned is so important for women to be supported by other women and by women mentors that when when the patriarchal structures try to undercut your confidence, you need support and care from others who understand that you have tremendous gifts and wisdom to share in the world and that you don't have to do it like a man. You can do it beautifully with all of the gifts and qualities that you have as a woman. And uh, that's so important. It's very, very easy to become discouraged and feel uh, undercut in uh responsible jobs in positions of leadership, women tend to overcompensate and become, you know, uh, better than the men they work with, harder workers, um, more prolific in the amount of work that they do. Uh, And it's really, that's the sign that we are living in an environment of a bias against women when women have to be better just to hold their own. We have to uh, support each other to recognize that we can be ourselves and be leaders and that our own gifts and qualities are very much needed in the workplace. Thank you for sharing that. I, I resonate with that so much. I, I studied engineering 
and was very much in, you know, a world with a lot of, a lot of men. And I remember I finished my master's degree and I was about to move into my first position at a firm. And I took this break and I remember feeling just this huge craving of needing support from women, which I hadn't had in years. And at least when we did, we, we felt like we had to interact the same way that the men interacted. So exactly. It, and engineering school probably taught you that. Yes, exactly. That everything had to be very logical and you had to really push and <laughs> force and all of those things and the overcompensation and, and it's for women and especially too, like I can't, I cannot imagine, you know, even further, you know, women of color, women who are even more traditionally oppressed. So that's right. The more we can lift each other up. So how would you suggest how can women find those mentors and that guidance and relax into I'm, I'm enough as I am in this position? And help and, and the maybe more than enough, more than enough. Right. I think it's right. it's tricky. I, I know that when I was young and entering the workplace, I didn't have female mentors, and I looked everywhere for them. I did find a few uh, distant mentors, but I think uh, women really need to look for female mentors who are going to encourage them to be themselves. Not all women, by the by, very fact of being women, are going to be good mentors for younger women or women entering the workplace, because some women have fought very hard to get where they are, and they can be incredibly competitive and really expect uh, the overcompensation of a woman entering the workplace. But there are always, these days, women who have had a rough time of it and they recognize it doesn't have to be that way. And so to seek out mentors who can support you and give you feedback about the things you need to have feedback on, but to encourage you to trust your own gifts and your own wisdom, it's so important. Because um, we're, we live in a world where there are many attempts to undercut the confidence and test the confidence of a woman entering the workplace, entering into positions of leadership. And uh, uh, we women have to really lean into empowering each other. Beautiful. And so, you don't have to, and you don't have to be like your mentor to do it. You do it in your own way. There are a lot of different styles that women have, and they don't have to do it all the same. But finding your inner wisdom voice is the most important thing. Right. Thank you. So you shared you shared one story about a challenge you faced at, at your first university. I was wondering if you have any other stories or words of encouragement for perseverance, resilience, to, to keep going towards that, that calling of leadership and helping others and all of that. Well, I think I don't have a single story, but um, I've been at Naropa for a long, long time. And I'm just retiring from Naropa after almost 43 years of wow. teaching. <laughs> and uh, I have to say that for myself, I am a leader at Naropa and I have enormous privilege at Naropa, enormous power. But it has come through many years of um, perseverance, 
and learning things often the hard way, um, burning out and then coming back and continuing. And there have been times that uh, I haven't gotten what I've wanted and I've been very disappointed. I remember in uh, 2013, uh, I was an applicant for the presidency of Naropa and a finalist in that uh, search. And the other candidates were all men. And as I went through the journey, I was thinking, they're never going to hire a woman. In the early days, Naropa had female leadership a lot, but Naropa had become a place with much more male leadership. So I was a finalist and uh, didn't get the job. I was supposedly candidate number two. And I felt incredibly angry and felt, uh, again, this sense that only men are viewed as having power or the skill to be a top uh, leader of a university. And the person who they hired was not a scholar the way that I was and was not connected with academics the way that I was. So I felt very, very hurt and embittered at first. And then it was interesting, the university came back to me and said, we don't want to lose what you are offering as a candidate. Would you be willing to uh, rewrite your job description to make it your dream job and stay on with the university doing, doing help in other ways? And as things turned out, it was so perfect. You know, the moment I didn't get the job was one of those moments of, we call in Buddhism, of encountering emptiness. Like, suddenly, poof, my whole uh, candidacy and all the things that I had dreamed for Naropa just went up in smoke. Poof. And in the midst of that kind of poof, there was this kind of smile of the Dakini, because the Dakini... Uh, who is the feminine principle in Tibetan Buddhism, she smiles when things fall apart. And she says, these are the moments you have the greatest amount to learn and learn how to operate in the midst of groundlessness. That's what the feminine principle is all about. So I had this, uh, this moment that was, you know, I was really irritated and hurt and all of that. And it turned into a beautiful situation where I was able to help Naropa in ways that were much more in alignment with the things that I really care about, which is teaching and fundraising and working with mentoring and cultivating the next generation of teachers. So um, I have often felt that that fortune smiled on me, that Dakini smiled on me when I didn't get that particular job and instead got a job that was more really what I would like to do, not balancing budgets, but continuing to teach students and to magnetize more people to Naropa University. I love that story. It's beautiful how that, that happens in life, doesn't it? Where it seems like everything's not working out and then it works out even better than you imagined. That's, that's incredible. And in the times in which we live with uh, COVID-19, a lot of people are facing this kind of, their lives are blowing up in their faces. And that kind of moment is so scary and devastating and hurtful, but it could also be turned into 
some kind of creative rethinking of one's life and some kind of a fresh innovation that we never would have imagined before. And that's also connected with this quality of the feminine principle of, again, when things go poof and there's enormous like sign of impermanence, there, there's a kind of freshness that is experienced in that moment. And that's something that we need to notice and build on in our lives. Beautiful. So hopefully people will be able to do that because these are very tough times for so many people. True. It's so true. So true. Oh, yeah. I, um, I've told this story on the podcast before, but I had a re- reset and refresh whenever I was working in that firm and my, my father got sick and had heart problems and he has Ooh. diabetes as well. And he's great now, but I quit and I moved home and it was you know, like a relationship ended, all of this stuff ended in the same week. <laughs> and wow. it was, it was horribly scary. And I felt like my whole world was just ending, but really it was the best thing that I could have, because I could say, okay, what's important to me and where, where do I want to go in life now? So yes, I love that you just gave that encouragement because there are so many people who are really, really struggling right now. And for good reason, but through looking at our own wisdom and through harnessing our own compassion to be gentle through this period, there can be a shift toward a direction that's even better than before, both individually and collectively. Absolutely. Well. <laughs> individually and collectively. But it requires that we develop the ability to listen to our inner wisdom, our inner voice that can really say, yes, this, this has goodness in it. Yes, this is, a, a, this is a creative direction to move. And maybe there's a kind of huge global reset happening for everyone right now that initially is so painful and difficult, but may actually generate something very powerful and positive for the human community. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. All we can do is take the little steps and, and set the, the intentions for it. So, yeah. So you, thank you. Thank you for sharing all of this. So you, you touched on emptiness and I was wondering if you would explain that a little more. How is that something that can be beneficial for us to contemplate? That's a, a great question for these days because Uh, one of the most profound teachings of the Buddha is about emptiness. And ironically, emptiness is always connected to this feminine principle that I was talking about earlier. But one of the most uh, sort of surprising and shocking teachings of the Buddha is something that's obvious to us these days, is that everything is impermanent and doesn't last. And uh, they say that the Buddhist teachings boil down to The two words, everything changes. And the reason that everything changes is that nothing is solid and abiding and lasting in anything in our world. And when we fight against that, when we deny it, it causes lots of suffering and lots of frustration and a feeling of being singled out for hurt rather than recognizing that impermanence affects everyone in the world. 
the teachings of emptiness are the recognition that when you see that everything is changing, that it's recognizing that there's no solid ground anywhere. And uh, I remember that one of the sayings of Trungpa Rinpoche that I love is that life is like jumping out of a plane with a, a parachute and then the parachute doesn't open. And so the bad news is we're falling and the good news is there isn't any ground. So um, it becomes fearful if we think we're going to splat, you know, right on the ground. But the bad news is the parachute didn't open. And the good news is there isn't any ground. There's only fluid movement through space. And we're all doing that together. So the illusion that things were solid that we had before COVID-19 has pretty much sort of gone away into poof. And we've begun to realize that our entire economic system, our healthcare system, all the sort of artificial constructs of our life are not really that resilient or reliable. But our human heartedness, our connection remains anyway. And it's up to us to recreate our world in a way that works better for everybody. Beautiful. Thank you. A hundred percent. (laughs) Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. I just have one last question. So yes, you, you're retiring from Naropa. What's, what's next for you? I am, I have no plans. That's what's actually, uh, I always thought that it would be best at a certain point before there were health reasons or external reasons to just move on to something else into a more unstructured life without so much scheduling and so many responsibilities and to uh, improvise a little bit. So I, I have plans for writing projects and for retreat and spending time with my grandchildren and just uh, seeing the sky, you know, having a sense of just being present for all the changes that are taking place in our world. And so it actually feels very auspicious right now to retire when there's so much groundlessness in our world. I just want to experience that. And uh, I know I have so many interests and know so many people that the time could easily fill, but I don't want to make long-term commitments. I want to just uh, see things unfold. Beautiful. Lovely. Well, congratulations. Thank Thank you, you, Melissa. You're so welcome. Thank you for this conversation. I, I loved it so much. I know everyone who is listening is going to love it and it's truly an honor and thank you. Yes. And wonderful. And a podcast like this is so important. And I think especially because it's more women's voices, it's important that we women keep talking to each other, sharing and supporting each other. Um, It's so easy to feel alone. And uh, this kind of support is extremely important. So thank you for creating the podcast. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's my... It's one of my ultimate joys in life, honestly. So that's wonderful. So, to everyone listening, I will have 
details down below where you can find out more about Judith. And thank you so much for tuning in.